0: As we begin this morning I want to invite you to walk backwards with me through a little bit of American history. Especially as we do that I want you to consider how we find this recurring pattern where great movements of our times are often triggered by a single event. I can take you back as far as the days well really the beginning days of what came to be called the Revolutionary War. As that group of Americans decided that it was time for a definitive action to break away from England, there were those skirmishes, there was this building kind of a discontent. And in the midst of that, there was a skirmish. Ralph Waldo Emerson perhaps best captures the significance of that trigger event as that trigger event set up the beginning of the Revolutionary War, Emerson says in his Concord hymn these words, by the rude bridge that arched their flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled, here the once embattled farmer stood and fired the shot heard round the world. We walk backwards through history, and we find that major movements often are triggered by a single event. Go with me to Montgomery, Alabama, some five-plus decades ago now, where one little old lady by the name of Rosa Parks decided that she would not give up her seat on the bus. And out of that, not that it was the only thing, again, it was an event that was preceded by building tensions. But from that one event, the Civil Rights Movement was born. We could go even to other places to underscore this. In our lifetime, some of you may well remember that day that will live in infamy, the day when the American nation was pulled into World War II as the Japanese Air Force made its raid on Pearl Harbor, a single event that triggered a significant change in reality. Perhaps all of us in this room today would remember the date 9-11. We don't even have to put the year on the end of that, although it was 2001. That single event where those terrorists flew planes into two buildings in Washington, excuse me, in New York City and one into the Pentagon in Washington, DC, became the trigger event that many of you have sacrificed parts of who you are and friends have lost their lives because of that. We walk through history and we find that as a recurring pattern. Great movements often are triggered by single events. Nowhere is that more true than when we come to the what I call the Jesus event. The incarnation of Jesus Christ when he came born of a virgin as we just finished the Christmas season not long ago and we celebrate that birth of Jesus, that birth that became a life, that became a passion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Jesus event in total was one of those trigger events that shook the foundations of eternity. It is in that scenario, that event, if you will, that we find a turning point for us as people. I want to take you as we begin this morning into the book of Mark. It's Mark chapter 1. And I think you're going to have it on the screen so you don't have to turn there. We're going to be in Mark 4 before it's all said and done. But this single event for Jesus, his birth and his young life we celebrated recently, but there came a day when Jesus pulled the trigger, if you will, on his ministry. And in Mark's gospel chapter 1 in verse 15, it says that Jesus said this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It is that announcement, if you will, that pulled the trigger on Jesus' ministry. And from that point forward, Mark, the gospel writer, lays out for us in no uncertain terms that this Jesus was not just some other guy. that He was, in fact, and continues to be the Son of God, born in human flesh, come to reveal God's grace and to embody salvation for us, for those who would trust in him. Jesus is that trigger. But into that scenario, that first century Jewish world that was marked by an occupation of the Roman soldiers, the Roman Empire had stretched its way into Israel. And those people of Israel were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah to be exact. They were looking for, according to their own studies and their own interpretations, they were looking for that one that God would send who would flip the script on the Romans who were occupying them. They were looking for a political Savior. They were looking for somebody who would come in and Take them out from under the boot of the Roman Empire and raise them to the highest of heights on the world political stage. It's into that environment that Jesus came and began to teach his followers. What was the nature of the kingdom of God? In fact, the Messiah would come to usher in God's kingdom. Many of us in our theological terms would say realized eschatology, where the final days of history began as Jesus found his place in human form. But you see what Jesus represented and what he came to bring was not in sync with what the Jews were looking for. They wanted a political king. They wanted Messiah to come and put them back to the top of the heap, if you will. And so it's into that mix that Jesus began to teach about the kingdom of God. But he did so in a variety of ways, and one of the ways that he did so was through the use of parables. And we've been looking at some of these parables that Jesus told. So welcome back to our series that we've entitled Slanted. We call it Slanted because Jesus, in the way he approached the truth that many of them could not or would not embrace, oftentimes Jesus came from the flank. And instead of hitting them between the eyes with truth, he laid it out for them in ways that caused them to have to ponder a little bit and to, to interpret a little bit. We call those parables, and those parables Jesus used earthly stories that carried something about the teaching of the nature and the characteristics of the kingdom of God, which brings us to Mark chapter 4 and the two parables that we will look at today. I'm going to read both of them, and then we'll come back and look at the second one and the latter part of this message as we focus on the first one early on. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26, and Jesus said, The kingdom of God is is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle. Because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. But, or yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Let's look first at verses 26 through 29, this first of two parables we tackle today. Jesus comes to lay out a truth about the nature of the kingdom of God, and in doing so, he reaches into everyday life. Now, we don't really know the setting here. If Jesus and his disciples were walking along a road in the countryside and he saw some farmer planting seed, We don't know if that's the case. Certainly that would have been normal for them. They would have seen it before and would see it again because that was the nature of life there for them. Wherever the uh, setting occurred, what Jesus does is he comes in and he begins to attack something of their preconceptions about what the Messiah would bring, what kind of kingdom exactly God had in mind with the Messiah. So he starts with this story. A farmer just broadcasting seed, just throwing it. What is Jesus trying to get at here? I think that the main emphasis of this first parable actually is a little, it's a little bit, well, we have to dig a little bit for this. There's a word right in the middle of this parable that seems to be the controlling part of the entire thing. It's a word that that we've borrowed out of the Greek language in English. And as a matter of fact, what we've done is we've just taken the Greek word and we just slid it right into English and didn't do much even to change the way it sounds. Our word is automate. And so when Jesus says this in verse 29, the earth produces by itself. He's using a term that means it's the natural progression. It's one of those things that happens as a matter of the way God has designed our world. So the the picture is of this seed. The emphasis is not so much on the farmer here. It's on the seed itself because as Jesus tells the story, the seed goes out and it does what seeds do. It does what God has designed a seed to do. It sprouts and then it begins to take form, and then it ultimately produces a harvest by itself is the word that we find, the way we find the English language underscoring that. Here's, I think, the big truth that we draw from this particular parable is that is that the growth in the kingdom of God is certain. If it goes the way God designed it to, and it does then we can be sure that growth for the kingdom of God is certain. It is automated, if you will, although I hate to push that word too much in the English sense of how we use it. Let let me just see if I can not help apply this into everyday life for us. Who of us doesn't know of someone, maybe even a family member, who has decided that God's way is not going to be their way? Most of us have a family member, whether close in or in the extended family, who just seems to say, I'm not really interested in that God stuff. Many of us, and through the years, I know this to be true, through several decades of ministry, I've sat with people in their homes, in my office, in coffee shops. I've sat with people who have someone that they love dearly, who seems to reject Jesus Christ? They live outside of God's design for living, and it breaks our hearts. There are those people in our world who just seem to say, I'm, I'm not interested in that. One of the things that we might take from this passage, this little parable, is that the growth of the kingdom of God is certain. We may not understand it. This farmer didn't understand it, it says. But we can be sure that God is at work in the lives of those people. Now, we don't have guarantees because God gives us free choice, and that person may well walk away from it. But for those of us who have someone in our world that really is just killing us with concern, be sure that God loves that person more than you do. Be sure that God loves that person as much as he loves you. Be sure that God will not give up on those people. Be sure. That's hard for us because we like to be in control of those things. I'll come to that in just a few moments. But I think it's good for us to see on a personal level, the comfort that I draw from this particular parable is that the growth of the kingdom of God is certain and it is always on the move And it's driving towards its appointed end, the consummation of the ages. And God loves people. And he loves that person in your life. So hang on to that truth. Sometimes when we're dealing with people who are AWOL from the faith, sometimes we decide that we need to help God out. And so we jump into that mix, and we begin to try to work and maneuver circumstances and argue them into the way you think they need to believe. It's a good time to remember that the growth of the kingdom of God is certain. God has ways of grabbing someone's attention that are far beyond ours. After all, he reached you, and he reached me, and he's capable of reaching those people. Sometimes our concern is not so much about those people in our circle. Maybe you're one of those people who live in a circle of everybody in that family unit loves the Lord and is serving the Lord, and you don't really relate to what some of the rest of us go through with that. But here's another point of reference, I think, that this parable brings us some some comfort, and that is that we live in a society that seems to be sprinting away from the values and the kingdom of God as we know it to be. If you were watching the news this week at all, whether watching it on TV, listening to it on radio of some kind, or reading it in the paper, you'll know that there has been a a seismic event in American society this week where the state of New York decided that they would allow, make it legal to have abortions up to the due date of that pregnancy. Many Christian people are up in arms about that this week. We should be concerned (laughs) in many ways about that, but I want to take that reality and the angst and the problems that it causes for us, and I want to drive us to this passage. The growth of the kingdom of God is certain. God is moving whether we see it or not, whether we understand it or not, even when it looks like God is on break while society makes decisions that bother us you can be sure that the kingdom of God is actively growing and at work. It's a significant truth for us. So if you're here today and you're tempted to lose heart because it looks like God has taken a break, go back to this. Take heart and remember the teaching of this parable. You may not see it. You may not understand it. But you can take it to the bank that God is moving his kingdom forward in the lives of individuals and in society. Now, here's where the slant comes in, I think, for us. So I want to slow down a little bit, make sure we're all on the same page. The truth of the matter is, the way Jesus tells this parable and that word in the middle of it that says automate, automatic, if you will, God doesn't need you to pull off the growth of his kingdom. Now, I love you and all of that, but I've got to be honest with you. The reality is that God doesn't need us to do his kingdom growth. Now, don't. Now, many of you I know hear that and go, oh, well, wait a minute. That mean, I'm doing all this stuff for the church. I can just quit doing that. No, that's not what I'm saying. I am saying that God doesn't need us to pull off the growth. That's what we find in this. But we also know that God allows us. He, part, he invites us to be part of his kingdom's work. I would even suggest to you that you cannot find the fulfillment in life that God designed for you unless you are actively involved in his kingdom work. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior... And as your Lord, that means that he has provided for you certain gifts and certain abilities that help to move the kingdom of God forward. He doesn't need that from you, but he offers that to you. The farmer in this particular case, in this particular parable, he throws the seed out. We know that he had to do something between the beginning and the end of that, but the emphasis is not on him, it's on the seed. And the kingdom of God grows certainly. That's the slant, I think, because sometimes we think God needs us. If it's in the life of one of those people in your circle that I was talking about earlier, that we'll just argue them into our way of seeing things, that usually doesn't work. As a matter of fact, we put pressure, love pressure we might even call it, on some of them, and they somehow seem to just walk away. It's a good time to remember that God affects his word. He brings it to pass. And he has ways of dealing with people that we don't understand. And that's a problem for us because sometimes we're just impatient. I thought sure I'd see an elbow or two being thrown at a spouse in there. I didn't see that, so maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd today. I don't know, but uh, most of us are fairly impatient about some things. I know that because we keep seeing things that... Argue for doing things faster. How many of you have a microwave in your home? Microwave oven that is. Most of us do. What would you do without a microwave oven? How would you heat up your hot pockets, I wonder? You know what would no, I better not say that. We like things quickly. I know that's true. I saw a thing today, just this morning, an advertisement for a new phone system that goes to 5G as opposed to 4G, which used to be good enough because we had 3G before that. And before we had 3G, we just had cell phones. Now we have cell phones that help us to be distracted much faster than what we were ever distracted before, your computer at home. If you have, like our church had for our living Christmas tree, a computer that operated on Windows 95, you could probably grow a garden while you're waiting for programs to load. We are on a constant march to get information more quickly. And that's taught us to be impatient with slow stuff. One of the realities that I've learned through the years various attempts at gardening or living out in farms out in the panhandle of Texas where they have those big commercial farms. One of the things that I've learned about seeds and growing crops is that they have to operate on their timetable. You can't really speed it up a whole lot. I think that's part of the point for us, and that's part of the slant that Jesus tells here because he deals with some people. Even one of his disciples was from a group called the Zealots, And their deal was they were not happy with Roman rule and they were ready to cause an insurrection and eventually did that to try to get out from under Roman rule. And part of the message that Jesus is teaching to those disciples is that when it comes to God's rule and God's kingdom and God's work, you can't be impatient. By the way, that applies into the lives of those people that you are concerned about. There's a call here for us to trust what God is doing, to trust His timing. And so I would say to you, if that's you today, remember this truth. God is at work. He's capable. His timing is perfect. He's in charge. So relax. In case you need a verse to help you do that, this is the one that I quote in my own life more often than just about any other. Well, maybe First John 1, 9 I quote all the time, but Psalm 46.10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The kingdom of God grows certainly, whether we see it or not. The second parable tells us something else about the kingdom of God. I won't spend nearly as much time talking about it, but the second parable tells us something about the growth of the kingdom, and that is that it is significant. The first one, the growth is certain. Now the growth is significant. Now I have to tell you, I love being a father. Uh, as a matter of… I love being a father now more than I did when my kids were at home. <laughs> just keeping it real with you. I just… I love my kids, and I loved all that came when most of… Not all. I love my kids. Um, <laughs> But now that they're not at home, it's a little bit cheaper for me. But I miss some of the things that I learned from them. My son played basketball. Uh, he had a certain ability that I think uh, allowed him to to do that at a level that I never could have done. And um, So from the time he was in middle school on, he was playing a pretty high level of basketball. And I remember when we walked away from his final game, they they were his senior year, and they were in the playoffs. They were in the playoffs every year, high school basketball here in Texas. Uh, And I remember walking away from the final game being sad for them because they didn't progress as far as they probably should have. Uh, But then I got kind of selfish about it, and I was sad for me because I thought, I don't know, I won't be able to do that anymore. I won't be able to go to the games and watch my son play. And I I knew I was going to miss that. There's a lot of things about my kids being at home that I missed, but one of the things I do not miss at all were their growth spurts. You know what I'm talking about, those of you who have kids still? You know, when you buy a set of clothes for them when school starts in August, and by the time you get to Halloween, their pants are already, you know, instead of at their ankles now, the, the bottom of them goes up to the mid-calf level because they've just shot up in growth. And one of those growth spurts for my son Colin the basketball player. Uh, I was in the living room, and he came walking through without a shirt on. And uh, so I, I watched him, and in my head, I, I, I'm not going to tell you what I was thinking, but in my head, I was, what are you doing walking with, without a shirt on? He got past me, and then I saw that he was turning into a tiger. Um, because I, I saw these stripes on his back, and I thought, what in the world?" Well, Theresa had to help me out. I'm a little slow on some of those kind of things. She said, those are stretch marks on his back. I said, okay. <laughs> you know what a stretch mark is? It's a sign of growth. Don't miss this. He had grown so quickly that his skin wasn't stretching Well, it was stretching, but it was almost to the point of breaking, and so it couldn't keep up with the growth. So he had scars on his back where he had just grown so fast, and it looked like tiger stripes running down his back. Stretch marks, some of you will use this later. I know you will. Stretch marks are a sign of growth. So let's keep it real here. What are your spiritual stretch marks? Let's go back to the parable, the second one. Jesus says in verse 31, It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Here's what I want you to get from that. The, the parable and the message behind it that Jesus is giving is that the, kingdom of, the growth of the kingdom of God is certain. That's the first parable. But now we see that it's significant. Now, we could talk about the smallest of all the seeds. Remember that Jesus is talking into a group of first-century agriculturally-based people, And so for them, the smallest seed that they had was a mustard seed, roughly the size of a speck of dust. And his point is that when that small seed is planted, then it grows significantly. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we're told about that particular kind of mustard plant in first century Jewish life was that it would take over a garden it was such a fast growing and prolific in the way that it did uh, it did the growth that it would absolutely take over a garden and so they had to be really careful about where they would put it so the image that jesus draws from is this idea of this plant that you just couldn't control it was growth its growth was so significant and he puts that into the kingdom of god as a truth and he says essentially that the kingdom of God grows significantly. As we were dealing with the aftermath of mom's death and some of the things to try to get my dad moved out here a couple of days after her funeral, Teresa and I were at the house, and I came across this thing on her refrigerator where she had been measuring the growth of one of her grandchildren. This was the last of the grandchildren, to be exact. Her name is Madison. And she was one of those surprise babies in in our family, my brother's family especially. And, uh, And so I think by the time we got to that one, mom began to understand that she wasn't going to get any more grandchildren. And so she started measuring Madison's growth. And so when she would come visit them, she'd put Madison up against the side of the refrigerator, put a ruler or a book or something on her head and mark it there and say Madison and then have the date on it. And it became a chronicle of that girl's growth. I wonder if God had a refrigerator like that and he was measuring your spiritual growth, how prolific would be the growth? I told you a while back that I am in recovery. Probably not the kind you think I mean, but I am in recovery as an anger holic. Uh, you, you won't find anger-holic as a classified medical condition. But there was a point in my life where I really struggled with out-of-control anger. And God had to deal with me about that and continues to process that with me. Uh, I, I'm, I've come a long way. I, I, you just have to know I've come a long way, but I hadn't arrived yet. I know, I know that because every once in a while I'm reminded that the kingdom of God has not finished growing me. Even a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a situation and, boy, I mean, I went to anger just like that. And I had to confess that pretty quickly. And it reminded me that I still have room to grow. What is it that God is doing to grow you? What is the area of your life where the kingdom of God has taken root but you're still in process and you have not arrived as fully mature? What are you doing today that will ensure that a year from now, the kingdom of God would have grown in you? Let's close this down. I'll just reemphasize Jesus parabolizes. That's, I just made that word up. Jesus parabolizes these two truths about the nature of the kingdom of God. Growth is certain and growth is significant that is truth. And so we are measured against that truth. And so the question really might be is, how is the kingdom of God growing you today? Do you even know that kingdom of God? Have you received that particular seed that he's talking about, which is specifically Jesus Christ, that Jesus event that I said earlier triggered the turn of the whole eternal structure of our world. Do you know Jesus Christ? All of us should know that there's a little thing tucked into the first parable today that helps to drive this message home, not just for us, but for those first century listeners. It's in verse 29, he says, But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. His first century listeners would have heard in that statement about the sickle, the words of the prophet Joel. In Joel chapter 3, we find the prophet, as he gives the word of God, it is a message of judgment. In verse 12 of chapter 3 in Joel, he says, Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Here's the verse. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. What we find there is this reminder, Jesus to his first century listeners, Jesus to us, and that is that the kingdom of God is growing. It is consistent in that. It is significant in that. But there will come a day, the harvest day, the age of consummation will be that Jesus will say, time is done. We know it this way. On that day, and Edgardo mentioned this in his prayer a little earlier, on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The kingdom of God moves to that day. It is consistent. It is significant in its growth. It is certain to come. The question is, are you growing? Let's pray. And as we pray, let me just remind you that the reason we do invitations here is because we believe that each of us, when confronted with the Word of God, has a choice to make. What do I do with what God's Word says? What do I do with this Jesus? How will my life be different after this today? So we're going to invite you to make that decision, whatever it is in your life. You're confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he offers, what he does, and where this world is headed. Where is he in your life? What do you do with that? This invitation time is for you. If you don't know what to do with that, that's one of the reasons that each of us ministers are down front through all of this, so that we can counsel with you, pray with you, if that's what we need to do. Maybe you need to make a decision to trust Christ. This is a great time to do that. We'll help you with that. Maybe you need to make a decision to join the church and serve here where we're trying to connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ both here and in our community. Maybe it's a rededication time. Any number of things God might be doing with you, now is the time. So, Father, as we come to this time of invitation, we pray that you would move among us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us if necessary that you would help us to walk out with a commitment to grow in our spiritual lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. You come.